This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. I'm honored to have as my guest in the studio Fred Donner, director of the Center for Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Chicago, a professor of history in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations, and at Chicago's famed Oriental Institute. He's also a past president of the Middle East Studies Association. Fred, welcome to the studio. Thank you very much. Your most recent book, Muhammad Among the Believers, is an attempt to re-examine the historical record about the beginnings of Islamic history, which you have described in various places as obscure or enigmatic. Um, For many of our listeners, these words may be surprising because there's obviously a very profound and powerful existing narrative about the origins of Islam. Coming from the lens of a historian, though, what do we really know about that earlier period in Islamic history? Well, that's a tough question because we don't know as much um, from the historian's perspective that is on the basis of real documentation as we would like to know. We have, as you mentioned, a very powerful traditional narrative which we derive from chronicles and other works written by the Muslim community in the centuries after Muhammad's life. But uh, they are retrospective and we always have to wonder in what measure they are idealizing or have in some way or other altered what actually happened, as historians might like to say. And when you try to go back to the time of the prophet and place of the prophet himself uh, and the earliest years of the community, uh, we really struggle because we don't have a lot of documentation. There is some documentation and we need to use it more than we have, but the fact is that we don't have any, for example, any letters Uh, actual copies of letters of the prophet that that he wrote, the actual letter itself, not a a copy of something he may have written that we find in a chronicle of later time. Um, We don't have any other documents of that kind from his immediate entourage. Uh, We don't even have much uh, from that particular time from the surrounding communities. Uh, The Byzantine historiographical tradition, for example, which was quite robust in the 5th century and into the 6th century, just seems to suddenly dry up just as Islam appears on the scene, and it doesn't really come back online until like 150 or 200 years later, uh, just when the Muslim chronicles are starting to appear too. So we we don't really have uh, a solid base of documentary evidence. There's some, but not much. Very quickly, can you just sort of recap the the salient points of what that traditional narrative entails so that we can understand what the historical differences are when we talk about some of the revisionist interpretations? Sure. Um, Well, the traditional narrative um, portrays uh, Muhammad as having been born in the town of Mecca in Western Arabia sometime in the middle to latter part of the 6th century um, in a pagan environment, that is, the town of Mecca was considered to have been occupied by people who were pagans or animists. Um, And according to the tradition, he began at around the age of 40, uh, so something like the 610 common era, uh, to receive what he considered to be revelations of God's word to him, uh, which enjoined him to be strictly monotheistic, to recognize that there was only one God, Allah in Arabic, which simply means God in Arabic. and that this was uh, important that one should recognize God's oneness and uh, recognize that God is the creator of the world, that God uh, is the source of all 
um, the good things that we enjoy in life as human beings, and therefore we owe odd gr- uh, God gratitude in the form of prayer and almsgiving to take care of the less fortunate in society and so on. Um, and various ritual injunctions were gradually um, imposed or revealed, so regular prayer uh, and um, as I said, almsgiving, fasting in the month of Ramadan every year during the day, and uh, the pilgrimage to Mecca, if you can do it. So this story says that Muhammad began to receive these revelations, which contained this kind of religious preaching, emphasizing God's oneness. Um, Then Muhammad uh, ran into a lot of trouble with his fellow townsmen of Mecca, uh, and so he and his followers Um, took refuge uh, in the city of Medina, which is a couple hundred miles away, where he was invited to come as an arbiter. And there you get the first uh, sort of self-contained Muslim community, as Muslims would consider it, where they were actually running their own affairs for the first time. And in the final 10 years of his life then, when he was in Medina, he um, pulled the town together and then began to uh, bring other groups into this new community that he was building. He ultimately was able to overcome Mecca as well and absorb it so that we have a kind of new statelet or new polity growing in Western Arabia. Then he dies in 632, according to the traditional dating anyway. And uh, his followers uh, then embark on a process of expansion or conquest, which takes over in a couple of years the whole Arabian Peninsula, which is about the size of the eastern U.S., uh, and then spreads out into the neighboring countries, Syria, Iraq, and then from there into Iran and northward into what is today Turkey and across to Egypt and across North Africa. So that very quickly, within about 30 or 40 years, this new sort of imperial state is constructed with people from Western Arabia uh, sort of in the driver's seat as, as the ruling elite, speaking Arabic, a language which had not been a dominant, a politically dominant language before this time. Um, we have to remember, though, that the people who were leading the movement, we usually call them Muslims. Uh, I think that's problematic. We'll talk about that in a bit, perhaps. But these people who were running this movement, the Muslims, were a very small minority of the population in the first 75 years or so, probably no more than 5 or at most 10% of the population. And so we have to understand that the great majority of the people in the Near East in this early Muslim empire were actually Christians and Jews and Zoroastrians. So um, how have people interpreted and reinterpreted Islamic history in light of these sort of gaps in the available documentation? You mean modern historians? Yes. Um, Well, of course, the lack of documentation opens the door to an almost infinite variety of different hypotheses and speculation of all kinds. Uh, So the the range is enormous from people who say the prophet never existed to people who say the prophet did exist uh, and, and that his career was probably in many ways not too different from the way it's depicted in the traditional narratives and, and everything in between is possible. And that's possible because we don't have you know, documentation to pin down specific things. In your viewpoint, um, the sort of thesis that you put together, uh, Muhammad among the believers, you do take for granted that he existed and, th- and that certain events happened, but maybe with a different, less definite understanding of, w- of what Islam was at that time. Could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yes. Th- um, it seems to me that when we look at the text of the Qur'an, which, I, I t- of course, it's the sacred scripture of Muslims, and the tradition says that this is what uh, God's word has revealed to the Prophet Muhammad and then uh, recorded, written down, and, and sort of codified in the decades following the Prophet's life. 
And as far as I'm concerned, from the internal evidence of that text, this seems to be a very early text. So we can use it as a window into the sort of mental world, you might say, of the early community of believers. And the things that strike me about the text are, first of all, that it's directed at a group of people who call themselves believers, mu'minun. They don't call themselves Muslims yet. Uh, it seems their main uh, sort of identity category seems to be as believers. And that when you look at uh, other passages that describe who the believers are, you find that it's, it says that while some of the peoples of the book, as they're called, which is the, word, the general word for Christians and Jews, uh, people who had received... God's revelation in earlier um, deliveries, you might say, so that it recognizes the Torah and the Gospels as earlier forms of God's revelation to earlier communities. Uh, the Quran says that the believers include some of the peoples of the book who are righteous ones. Not all peoples of the book are considered among the believers. But anyway, the construction of this new community of believers that Muhammad seems to have started, uh, according to the Quran, seems to also include some people who are Christians and Jews who in the sort of standard view of Muslim view of the world are different religions. Uh, so there seems to have been some kind of process whereby at the beginning, yes, the prophet was and the Quran preaches very strongly the oneness of God and the need to be righteous in your day-to-day -day living and to be mindful of uh, the end of time, the last judgment, where we will be rewarded or punished according to how we've lived. Um, that is all very much there, but that still leaves an awful lot of um, flexibility or fluidity about what are the actual boundaries of the community. And I think that's what had to be worked out over the first hundred years or so until Islam, as we know it, defines itself as a separate religious confession. And um, what time frame was Islam crystallized by or, or had it taken on that definite form? So the traditional uh, death date for the Prophet is 632. Um, and it seems to me that the Islamic community, in the sense we understand it even today, uh, was really crystallizing by about 700. So it's you know something like 70 years after the Prophet's death, uh, a couple of generations, we might say, that it takes for this looser sense of community to give way to a much more tightly defined sense of community as Muslims. And by Muslims, I think w what we would say is, okay, these are they define themselves as a community that focuses on the Qur'an as God's word and the Prophet Muhammad as the vehicle for bringing God's word to mankind. And that also includes sort of a definite separation from Judaism and Christianity by that yes, point. Yes, because, of course, Jews and Christians would not recognize Muhammad as an, as a, as an apostle or as a, a, a true prophet of God, or the Qur'an as God's word. What implications does a revised historical understanding of, of the beginning period of Islam have for someone who is, say, currently studying world religions or world history in a, in a survey course uh, versus that, that traditional narrative? Well, of course, the, um, the events of the origins are the, are the starting point for the development of the whole Islamic tradition. Uh, so one could say, well, this provides a basis uh, for just understanding that origins in a different way and seeing how it emerges. I, my, my own sense is that it provides uh, a more, we might say, sociologically realistic way for understanding how this community emerged and spread so rapidly and succeeded so uh, wildly in the world. Um, I think if, if the movement had started as a very tightly defined, very narrowly defined uh, movement that was brutally antagonistic to other religious traditions, 
it could never have succeeded in the same way. It would never have been acceptable to the vast majority of the populations of the Near East who were, after all, Christians and Jews and Zoroastrians. So I think a kind of fluidity at the beginning was something that actually worked in favor, in the movement's favor for spreading and becoming politically dominant over a large area. And it was only over a long period, uh, first 100 years, 75 years or so before the the movement really defined itself as Islam, as a distinct religious confession, and many more centuries beyond that before um, a really uh, contentious attitude developed with these, with these other uh, religious groups. Finally, your current project involves uh, an Arabic papyrus you discovered in the archives of the Oriental Institutes. Uh, can you tell us what you found and, and how it's significant for your work? Yes, it was very... Uh, surprising and exciting for me to find it. I actually had spent a year on leave several years earlier looking at papyrus collections in Europe trying to find very early documents which would actually predate the kind of crystallization of Islam out of the believers movement. Uh, so that would be documents from actually from the seventh century that didn't reflect the later understandings. And I did find a few fragments but not much that was very helpful. Uh, and then when I came back to Chicago and preparing for a class on paleography, I was looking over some of the papyri we have, and I came across this one, which somehow has escaped everyone's notice, uh, which seems to be a very early letter. The script of it is what first struck me, because the script is um, of a very early variety, which um, in some of the letter forms simply aren't used after about 700. So. This immediately suggested to me this was a very early document. And then as I began to read it, uh, I found in it a whole bunch of names of individuals who are people in the orbit of the Prophet's close companions. Um, it seems to be dealing with the disposition of a relatively, well, a modest amount of money, we might say. Uh, not an insignificant amount, but it's not a, a huge fortune. Um, but it's sort of like... Um, just um, basic day-to-day -day affairs in a family or something. And this letter is about the, you know, how this small amount of money is to be divided, two dinars to this person, one dinar to that person, and so on. Um, but as I say, it's very striking because, first of all, some of the people mentioned in it are people from the time of the prophet. One is one of the prophet's daughters, Um Kulthum, who dies in 630. So if this, is, if this is actually what it appears to be, this is the oldest Arabic letter we have ever found. Um, and it dates from the time of the prophet himself. On the other hand, the content of it is also striking because it does not conform to what a later forger might want to include in it. It doesn't mention the prophet. It doesn't mention Islam. It doesn't really uh, grind any religious acts. It doesn't establish any claims to religious authority, political authority, social status, great wealth, or anything. So why would anyone later on forge this thing? Um, so it's very interesting. It does contain various phrases that you often find in um, other Arabic letters at the beginning and at the end, uh, little phrases that say things like, I praise to you, God, other than whom there is no God, a very nice monotheistic invocation. Uh, and at the end, things like, uh, peace upon you and the blessings of God. Salam alaikum wa rahmatullah. I mean, this is something you find in many letters right up until today. So it, it appears that the writer lived in a community that was clearly monotheistic or oriented to a, the, the worship of a single god, um, but it, there's nothing in the letter that could be called distinctively Muslim, mm -hmm. or for that matter, distinctively Jewish or Christian. It's just there's reference to God, so the mindfulness of God is something that's there. So it's extremely interesting because if it is, in fact, 
of the date that the content seems to suggest, that is from the first part of the seventh century, it's extremely early and it gives us a little window into this community that we'd like to know more about on the basis of documentation. Well, that's really fascinating. And, and as you mentioned, you're going to keep working with this document and I hope it continues to uh, to yield results and uh, gives us a new window into this into this time period that we don't have a lot of documentation about. I'd really like to thank you for being with us and being part of 15-Minute History. Don't forget, you can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We'll see you next time. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-Minute History. That's the numerals 1-5-Minute History. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.